going to continue to worship together. As a, as a people, we believe that by His Spirit, God speaks to us. He speaks to us right now. He speaks to us through song. He speaks to us through scripture. And He speaks to us through the silence. And in prayer, we get to speak to God and God speaks to us. And so we're going to take a moment now and we're going to, we're going to pray as a community. And I'll offer up some, some words of prayer. You can kind of like echo those prayers in your heart if you like. And then there's going to be moments, pauses, where we can offer our own prayers up to God. And then as become our kind of pattern as community, uh, we'll close and I'll prompt us and we'll say, Lord, hear our prayer. So I invite you to bow your hearts. Let's pray together. God, together we pause. We want to slow down our busy minds, allow our hearts to slow, take a moment to breathe. And we remember that you are God. You are Lord. You are mighty. You are good. We turn our attention away from the stress of our week from the challenges that loom in our lives, from the distractions that consume us. We turn our attention to you because we know you want to guide us. You want to care for us. You want to lead us into the ways of life that are good. So we take a moment now to simply turn our attention fully to you, God, and remember who you are. Together, Lord, hear our prayer. God, we desire to be faithful to you as you have been faithful to us. We know your ways are good and you invite us to be part of your healing work in the world. Where are you at work, God? How are you trying to extend love into our world? How are you trying to bring hope to our world? How are you working to thwart the ways of evil? How are you shining light in dark places? What ways are you inviting us in? What opportunities do you want us to see around us? We take a moment now to pause. And listen for your voice, God. We ask you to whisper in our ear the ways you want us to be part of your good work in the world.
together. Lord, hear our prayer. God, we acknowledge that we are people who make many mistakes. We face our failures because we know you want to offer us healing and hope. We have moments of weakness, moments when our words get away on us, moments when our selfishness gets away on us, moments when laziness holds us back, moments when we fail to be generous, when we fail to forgive, when we fail to love others well. We take a moment now to pause, to acknowledge our sin and our mistakes, trusting that you offer us forgiveness and healing. Together, Lord, hear our prayer. God, we open ourselves up fully to you. We know that it is by your strength that we can truly live. So we, we invite your spirit to energize us, to fill our minds with wonder and imagination. Strengthen us that we might join you in your good work in this world. Fill our hearts with hope that the darkness we face in this world can be overcome. As we spend time listening to your story this morning in the scriptures, help us to see the way your story is still unfolding in our world today. We pray this in your powerful name. Amen. So uh, we've been walking through a sermon series this summer, reflecting on the miraculous ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Um, and a few weeks ago, I introduced you to, oh, do you know what? I don't have the clicker. I, this is my brand. This is my brand, everybody. It's called Disjointed and Unorganized. I hope you like it. I feel like I'm perfecting it. Also, before I begin, I just wanted to say something to Penny. Penny, I know that you missed uh, my preaching shirt. It's the one with the, the roses on the yoking here. But I did get this shirt approved for league play, so I'm good to go today. And uh, I want you to know that I can preach with, with different shirts on, but that is one of my best preaching shirts, so thank you for for noticing and inquiring after it. It's, it's laundry day, and I, I didn't want to look all wrinkled. So what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, right, Elijah and Elisha. So they come at a time uh, in Israel's history where they, were, they had held on to the promised land. God had established the kingdom through David, and then they were starting to lose it. And uh, I, I 
I, I tell you that because we're going to get into, again, this idea of, of the world behind the text, the world of the text, and the world in front of the text. But before we kind of do a bit of a review on, on uh, this Bible study technique that I taught you a couple weeks ago, I just want to add a couple more things to the list to get you chewing just a little bit harder. Um, but before we get into all of that, why is it that we Christians care what the Bible has to say in the first place? Why do we literally drag our sorry rear ends out of our bed on a Sunday morning and come to a building that looks like, like a, a, a curling rink every week? Why do we do this? Why do we care what this book has to say? And it's pretty simple, but I think it's worth saying that we believe this, that God is always up to something through the text and in our world. We believe that God uses scripture to speak to what we need to do next, like at lunchtime today, like this afternoon, or this week, or this month, or this year. And we believe that God operates in two spaces, that he operates in the text, and he operates in our world. And that's why we do this every single week. You see, the Bible acts like a fixed point of reference to help us draw straight or continuous lines into our world. Now, I want you to think of it like this. If you are a carpenter, if you are building something, how do you draw a straight line? Well, you take your tape measure out and you make one tick, and then you measure again, you make another tick, then you take a straight line and you intersect those two dots and you can be pretty confident that what you've just created is going to make sense in your project. And we use the Bible in this way. We do the same thing with scripture. So what we do is we ask ourselves about three worlds. We ask ourselves about the world behind the text. So there was a historical circumstance that led to the writing of the book we're about to read together. And the historical circumstances that led to the writing of the book under the, Holy, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the circumstances that led to that writing matter. They're one of the tick marks that we have to measure if we want to draw a straight line. The second is the world of the text. So we need to understand what kind of literature we're reading. We need to understand how the text tells the story. We need to get lost a little bit in the world of the text, the way the story is told. You're going to see a couple of reasons why we want to pay attention to that um, to that today. And then, finally, we are able, using a straight line, 
being careful in our work. You always, everyone who's a carpenter, you know this, you, uh, you measure how many times? Twice, and you cut how many times? Once. And why do you measure twice? Because you can get kind of exuberant to get to the cutting, and you can make a mistake. And believe it or not, we have made these kinds of mistakes before. So the way that this works is uh, you have this text that gets frozen in time. So it's a stable point. The words of the Bible have not changed in literally thousands of years. There really aren't a lot of books that we have that are like this book. We have more textual evidence for the Bible than any living human document. Do you know how many copies of Homer's Iliad, for instance, we might have existing in the world? Well, none of the originals. Well, we have about two to 400 different copies and fragments to work with. And most of us are pretty content with saying this is an accurate reflection of what he wrote down. We have over 60,000 copies and fragments of the Bible. We can be pretty confident that these words are the words that got written down. The challenge is, for Christians, is that we have to be good at drawing these tick marks. Why did they write it down? What did it mean to them? What is it actually saying? What are the words? What are the meaning of those words? And then we can draw our straight line into our life. Let me give you a Bible example of how this worked out. So let's consider the Sabbath. Okay? Where did the Sabbath come from? Well, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but no matter how much you eat at a buffet this afternoon, and believe me, some of you are going to try that in earnest today, you're going to be hungry on Wednesday morning. If you have five plates or two plates, you'll be just as hungry on Wednesday morning. Have you ever noticed that? And our need to work for a living, to produce food, to feed ourselves is ongoing. It never goes away. We have to keep doing it. And so the temptation for human beings to live in a 24-7 world where they never rest is very real to us. And so long, long ago, God instituted the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? Anybody know? It's a, it's a rest, a day of rest. We take every seven days. And then every seven years, there's a Sabbath. And that's called a, well, Joe just took one. That's called a sabbatical or the Sabbath year. And then every seven, seven years, there's this thing called the year of Jubilee. Has anybody ever heard of the year of Jubilee? Literally every 49 years, all property returned back to the original people and society essentially started over. This was God's plan because he didn't want us hoarding our wealth, pretty much doing everything we're doing right now. He didn't want us doing that. And he longed for people to live a just life together. One where the rich didn't have specific advantages over the poor. And 
And he wanted us to live in a world that understood his place in it. You see, if you work in this 24-7 way, you can be tempted to think that you are the only reason for all the good things that happen in your life. And God wanted us to live in such a way that we would know that he is a part of that too. A deep and important part of our survival is actually dependent not on the work of our hands, but on the goodness of God. So we wrote down the policy. We wrote down the rules for the Sabbath. And lots of people before us have had to interact with the words that got frozen in time on the page. And the words are fairly clear. And the stories are fairly clear. But every time, every generation, every person has to do this tick mark work and draw a straight line and figure out what they're going to do. Well, what's happened is, over hundreds of years, the Sabbath laws started to collect barnacles. They started to collect little tidbits of human understanding that started to bend the practice of the Sabbath away from God's intended future. So all of us live at some point over here in the current culture, somewhere between right now and God's intended future, and we always have to draw these tick marks. Here's how this played itself out in the New Testament. Jesus shows up, and he and his disciples are walking through a grain field one day, and his disciples are pulling off heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating it because they're hungry. But they did it on the Sabbath, and they didn't ceremonially wash before they ate. And this caused real problems in the religious community. People got mad at them for that. And Jesus was known to heal people on the Sabbath. And this got him in trouble. So what you got here is an example of people say, here's, well, we're not really worried about the original culture, frozen in time words, and draw a crooked line into the current circumstances. And do you know how Jesus corrected them? He said, have you not understood it yourselves? Pay attention. Pay attention to the original culture. What did David do? Well, David, when his men were hungry, they went into the, the temple and they ate and they were satisfied. Here is the point that God is trying to get at. God's intended future. The direction things are meant to go is this. The Sabbath is made for people, for the benefit of people, for the needs of people, for the goodness of people. People were not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for the people. Do you see how you can sometimes collect some barnacles? And here's what's crazy, is that even though Jesus redrew those lines, our own 100 years of free Methodism history could teach us a thing or two about drawing the lines incorrectly. Our movement started uh, sort of later 1800s. By the 1900s, we didn't have, we hadn't had a good old-fashioned revival in a long time, and a lot of us were starting to get worried about what that was. What we weren't paying attention to were the changes in the culture and the reality outside the church had actually changed since the revival started. And so we need to adapt and pay attention to that. But instead of that, we said, you know what the problem is? Everyone's getting lazy in their faith. 
And so we had some meetings and tried to figure out how we get ourselves back on track. And I'm, I'm literally reading from uh, some minutes of the free method. This is what people like me do. We, we crack books and read. So here's what we said. Here are the problems. Stud buttons and pins. So I don't know if you're noticing this shirt, but this is, these are stud buttons. I've heard of stud muffins. I didn't know these are stud buttons. Stud muffins wear them, I guess. Um, here's another problem we detected. Indecently long mustaches and beards. And we noticed problems with our Sabbath keeping. Here were the problems, everybody. Social visiting, picnicking, joyriding, sightseeing, patronizing milk wagons, streetcars, ferry boats, reading newspapers and magazines, and the children. Are you ready? Lay aside. We need our children to lay aside toys, ball games, marbles, rambles in the woods for nuts and squirrels. Our children on Sundays were out there rambling. And so we tried to draw a straight line into our world, and you know what? We got it wrong. Do you know how we know we got it wrong? If you talk to older Free Methodist people, they will remember this Free Methodist church, and there you'll see chills go down their spine. We almost lost an entire generation of people to these awful rules. So why do we do this every week, and why do we want to do this with skill? It's because you can make mistakes. You can measure once, cut once, and screw up a piece of wood. Maybe even break your project. So we have to pay attention, and it's a normal function of our church that we have to do this. So that's why I want you to have good Bible study skills as people, because it's not just out there in general where mistakes are made. Mistakes have been made in our own denomination. Now, let's talk about what I, well, I'm actually supposed to talk about, which is the book of First and Second Kings. So, when was, what was the original culture that gave rise to this? Well, most people would date the writing of First and Second Kings to the exile period. So, what you have is, is, God gives them the promised land. They lose the promised land somehow. They wind up in exile, so not in control or in charge of any aspect of their lives. They are slaves. They are oppressed. Their kings are puppet kings of a foreign nation. And they're asking questions, how did we get here? How did this happen? And they were asking this question. If we were to rebuild our nation, how will we not do that again? So those would be two very important questions that First and Second Kings tries to answer. 
And so the content of this book for them is sort of a national and personal blueprint for what not to do. And so we should expect that we are going to see story after story of people doing things that you're not supposed to do. So if you come to the Bible and you start treating it as everything everyone does in there is a good idea, you are going to be, well, you're going to be a dangerous person at the end of that. Because there are moments and lots of them where people do things they're not supposed to. We've even read stories where Elisha and Elijah have done things they're not supposed to do. And I thought they were going to be our example. Well, they are, but we have to be smart about that example. We have to measure twice when we use them as an example. All right, so that's a little bit about the world behind the text. Now let's talk about the world of the text to make our second tick mark. So I do want to preface today's passage this way, and maybe this will create some intrigue uh, for, for you, but um, there are truly disturbing words and images and actions that get described in this. I'm not, because there are kids with us today, um, I don't know how we ever turned the Old Testament into a kid's coloring book, but this is one of those pages that they didn't fill in, okay? And if you want some truly hair-raising uh, reading, I'll invite you to read the passage yourself when you get home. So this is coming from 2 Kings 8. It's kind of in the middle of the chapter. So what I'm going to do is retell the story my own way, and I'll let you uh, check my homework when you get home. So, Elisha is heading to a foreign city, the city of Damascus. You may have heard of it from other areas of the Bible, but this was not a part of Israel. This was a foreign city. While Elisha is in Damascus, where it gets around, and the king of Aram, his name is Ben-Hadad, okay, Ben-Hadad, who he's been seriously unwell lately, and sends his servant Hazael to go to talk to the man of God and to ask, will I recover? Now, this is why we pay attention to the world of the text. Because if you had been reading earlier, there'd be a couple alarm bells going off in your head right now. So one, this is the exact same question that Ahaziah asked in 1 Kings, in the first chapter, uh, he, he got hurt. He fell through his garden window or something, and he got hurt, and he was really unwell. And instead of inquiring of Yahweh, though, he goes to a foreign country, and he inquires of Baal-zebub, the god of these foreign kings, and asks the question, will I get better? So that's one alarm bell. That's just the world of the text talking to us. It's a little echo, little thing you'd pick up. Another alarm bell is you would realize that Elijah was given several assignments for his prophetic ministry, and one of those assignments was to anoint Hazael king of Aram. How does that work? Because 
Elijah is not a prophet in the kingdom of Aram. He is not involved in the politics. What right does he have to anoint this person as king? It's a very weird assignment he's given. And weirdly, he doesn't do it. He doesn't complete this before he's taken away. And so Elisha is in Damascus, and he's talking to Hezael. What's going to happen, everybody? So that's a little bit of world of the text. So I'm going to tell you what happens next. So Hezael shows up to where Elisha is staying, and he's got 40 camels, and they're all loaded down with treasure. And the idea here is if this foreign king can influence Elisha with riches, maybe Elisha can control Yahweh and get a favorable oracle. Well, what do we already know about trying to bribe Yahweh? Well, it doesn't work. And what do we already know, based on what I preached a couple weeks ago, can you bribe Elisha? Does that work? No, it doesn't work either. So Hezael doesn't really know that his plan isn't necessarily going to get him the results that he wants. So, Hezael asks Elisha, says, okay, Ben-Hadad is really sick and he wants to know, will he get better? Now, there is some confusion here in terms of interpreting this. And so, the, the, the way that we have it translated is that at first, Hezael, he's to say to the king, you will get better, but then Elisha realizes, no, he's actually going to die. I'll, I'll save you all the, all the, the, the translation stuff there, but the, the words are, uh, are, are synonymous, and it's a little challenging for us to know exactly what's going on in the story, and it's kind of key to understand the story. But you're going to be able to see that this question becomes completely pointless. So Elisha is telling Hezael what he should do, and then all of a sudden, he just keeps staring at Hezael. And Hezael gets really uncomfortable. He just keeps staring at him. And then tears begin streaming down his cheeks. Hezael says, What? And Elisha says, I know what you're going to do. I've seen the future. I've seen what you're going to do to us. I've seen the way you are going to hurt us. And what's really fascinating is, Hezael, I just stepped on a cricket. And that was super gross, and there is... Okay. Ugh. I'm leaving cricket footprints all over. Okay. All right. Focus. I was getting dramatic and everything. 
So what's interesting is Hezael doesn't say something like, oh, no, I would never do all those bad things. He says, I can't. I'm a nobody in my kingdom. I'm just a dog. Don't worry. And Elisha says, no, actually, God showed me you're about to become the king of Aram. So Hezael goes home. The king asks Hezael, what did Elisha say? Hezael says, uh, you're going to recover. And then the very next day, Hezael sneaks into the king's bedroom and assassinates him. So in the story of First and Second Kings, this story is the inflection point. Up until this point, we've had moments of hopefulness and moments of really serious darkness. And it's kind of a will they or won't they situation. But basically from this point on in the story, it is just a they won't situation. Darkness begins to spread over the land. The people are led astray. They are doing the same thing over and over. They are ignoring the prophets, and they're doing everything that's wrong. So now, let's return back to, because we're going to measure twice, cut once. Let's return back to the world behind the text. So how would this story have sounded to the first people that wrote it down? What would they have noticed? What would the Holy Spirit have been inspiring in them? We have to ask questions like that because if we're going to be fair to the scriptures and not make it just a book about us, which we often do, and that is a big mistake, is we need to respect the Bible and we need to respect the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we say, it really shouldn't mean something to us that it didn't mean to them first. So that's why we draw the tick mark with them first and in the words first. Because we can't read our own meanings into these words. We have to allow the words to speak for themselves. Does that make sense? So we ask this question because we take the scripture seriously. So what would folks like this have reacted to? Well, firstly, I imagine they would identify deeply with Elisha's tears in this moment. The people that wrote this down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit knew exactly how cruel Hezael was going to be. They would have heard these stories from their grandparents and their great-grandparents about this guy. And it the suffering that he caused would have scarred entire generations of people. And I imagine they would have identified with Elisha's sense of hopelessness. Elisha could only stand there and cry. There was nothing that the man of God could have done to change the future for Israel. Because Elisha knew this. Hazael is going to has. And Israel is going to is. And there's nothing you can do about this. This is what they want to do. This is who they are. 
And unfortunately, no one was going to listen to the prophets of God. And we know that from the story. And as First and Second Chronicles, like so first and second Kings, it will always say, see, this is what happens. First and second Chronicles is always, and if they had just taken a moment, if they'd just taken a breath, they could have turned it around, but they didn't. And so we have to think like that a little bit here too. But eventually the people of God would so exasperate God that God would simply hold back health and safety from them. He would simply not intervene on their behalf and the world would follow its natural course and people would do what they really wanted to do and they would suffer incredibly because of it. C.S. Lewis describes situations like this in The Great Divorce. This is a book that I've been trying to convince my son Nathan to read for a while. And so Darius, if you're here, read it and try and convince him to read this book. Uh, Cause I've noticed you can convince that guy just about anything. So C.S. Lewis in the book, The Great Divorce says this, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and consistently, constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. This is the sadness that they are writing out. The author of Kings knew what the future looked like for Israel. The whole nation was about to get its secret wish and become just like everyone else. Even though God had established them to be different, they wanted to be just like everyone else. They are afraid they are missing out on a good time. God wanted them to be a nation that honored God's place in the center of it. And in exchange, God would ensure that they lived in peace, that their lives together would be just and good and merciful, and that they would act as a blessing to the world around them. Instead of turning toward God and being shaped in the God way, Israel was about to take every opportunity they could to become the lying murdering, backbiting, atrocity-committing nations around them. They would do these same things. And instead of following God, they would completely ignore God, and they would completely ignore God's prophets, and eventually, they would be easy pickings for their own personal Darth Vader here, Hezael. And as it turns out, as for Heziel, he would get what was coming to him too because in Heziel's future was an even bigger and badder Darth Vader. And he would swoop in with plans of his own and wipe out Heziel. Here's a statue of that guy. That guy goes by the handle of Shalmanezer three. There's three guys named that. 
And this guy was an even bigger, badder Darth Vader than Hazael. And he actually made people write down all of his exploits on his statue. And here's a rendering of what got said in the statue about Hazael. It says, Hazael, son of nobody, took the throne. He mustered his troops. He moved against me to wage war and battle. I fought with him and defeated him. I took away his walled camp. He fled for his life. And I pursued him as far as Damascus, his royal city, and I cut down his gardens. This guy hated his tomatoes, I guess. And then there's something, something, some of it got broken. The gods Anu and Adad and peace and I received tax. That's how the story continues, uh, which I just find endlessly fascinating. Everybody always gets their tax, but whatever. This Darth Vader, of course, uh, he got wiped out by a Darth Vader of his own in his future. And then another Darth Vader wiped that one out. And the people who are writing this down are on about their third or fourth Darth Vader by the time they write this book down. I think they also would have noticed how important it is to have prophets in your midst. When people speak God's words to you, do you listen? This would have been a big question for them. Because the world around them liked to pretend that God was always on their side. And we know full well that governments play that game and it's not true. It's not true. And so prophets are brave people that speak truth to people even when they don't want to hear it. They are people who know that God can't be tamed. They are people who, th who know themselves that God can't be bought. They are people that know that God is not a national pet. They know that God is also gracious and kind and slow to anger. And they know that God forgives and that God heals and God restores. So they plead with people, please, please come back. Please come back. They also know that humanity is addicted to doing everything the hard way. And so sometimes they stand and they weep because of the world that they live in. Okay, so now we're rounding the corner. What is going on in the world in front of the text? The story is being recounted for you on August the 29th, 2021. Way too late, uh, and I'm in a lot of trouble. Uh, but what characters or actions are you noticing? How is this story starting to move into yours? How are you drawing the lines today? Let me ask you this. If Elisha were here today and he looked at our world, he saw the future, would he smile or would he weep? If Elisha was looking at the future of our church, same question. Would he 
smile, or weep? Are we about to become people who honor God and place God at the center and allow God to direct our affairs, or are we about to grab the wheel ourselves? God has established each and every church to be different from the world around it. How? Well, first, we're to be a people who honor God and place God at the center of our life. And in exchange, God will ensure that peace, peace-loving, peacemaking people, that would characterize our lives together. That our lives together would promote justice, goodness, and mercy. And God intends that we become a community that blesses the world around us. But that is an ongoing choice. It's a choice we've been having to make for a hundred years. And it's a choice we're going to have to make for a hundred more. What kind of church are we going to become, Lakeview? What do we intend? If Elisha was looking at you today, at your future, what would he see? Are you the kind of person that lives in the God way? The kind of person that honors and places God at the center of your life? Does the peace of God characterize how you live? Are you a person of peace? Does your life promote justice and goodness and mercy? Does your life Bless the lives of those around you. And is your heart open to be shaped in the God way? Now, if I asked you that question and you're a little bit worried that tears might start streaking down Elisha's cheeks when God saw your future, I've got good news for you. Your story isn't written yet. God is slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He is gracious and kind. He is capable of healing you. He is capable of redeeming, restoring you. Question is, will you let God do it? Will you participate? Will you make your own character your ally? Will you allow your heart and your soul to be shaped by the God way? Will you let it change you? But I also want to warn you this morning that God cannot be mocked. There are consequences for your actions. What you plant in the ground will grow. So if you, sit, if you sow, if you plant discord, lying, gossip, if you plant sin, it is going to grow. This is the tragedy of our lives. I have another very dangerous question to ask. But I don't really care. Is God sending voices into our world to speak to us today? As we head into an election cycle, what are the words that prophets are speaking into our country right now? And are you joining your voice with theirs? Are you speaking truth about the agonies and the burdens of the world around you? And are you fighting for God's intended future in the middle of this one? 
Will this be the election year where our leaders take seriously the cries of indigenous people for justice? If I listen to the voice of the prophets, that's at least one of the things that we're talking about and we have to come face to face with. What about the groaning of the earth? The fact that this Sunday, when you look up in the sky, the orange, the, the, the sun is an orange. Our world, our earth, our planet is groaning. And will we be people that can handle that truth, that can deal with that truth, that can join that truth? Are the voices of the prophets silent because we've asked them to shut up? Or are they speaking? So, my question to you today is how are you drawing straight lines from this sacred book into your world and into your life this morning? Friends, we will continue to meet here every week and we will do the same things. We will center our hearts and our souls and fix our attention on, on, on God through prayer, through worship. We will pay attention to the fact that God is always up to something through the text and in our world. And we will leave this place every week with fresh lines drawn into the places we live, into the homes that we share and we build with our families, into every aspect of our lives. And we will look for God's help in shaping our whole lives around the God way in the world. So, come on back next week for more of the same. 